Hello and welcome to another episode of the Authentic Path Podcast. This is your host, Phelan Sugarman-Lesh, and this is episode number 16. I am so sorry that it took me so long to get this out to you. My life has been totally busy recently, but I'm really excited to get this out to you because it's a really amazing episode with a man named John Twohawks. And John, I found when I was looking through different blogs about the seven directions and what they mean in our lives and um, how they resonate. And so I reached out to him just to ask if he would come on the show and talk about his musical career as well as his his wisdom about life and, and Native American heritage and that that area of life. And he so graciously said yes. So it was a really, really lucky and amazing opportunity for me to get to speak to him. He is a Grammy and Emmy nominated uh, musician and he is an amazing dude. He owns his own um, fitness company and like helps with life coaching and, and body coaching with people. And then he also just creates amazing flute music. And in this episode, we talk all about his life ranging from how he got into music to what music does for him. And then all the way over to what the seven directions mean and how we can apply them to our lives and what authenticity means and what the journey of authenticity looks like. And, um, yeah, I'm just really, really excited to share this because it's probably one of my favorite episodes that I've done so far. So yeah, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the authentic path podcast. And before we get into the show, just a word from our sponsors, me. And what I mean by that is that I have recently started coaching people and it's been a lot of fun. And the reason that I'm doing it is because in my own life, I found that being the most authentic version of myself led to the most fulfillment and happiness for me. I was just listening to Joseph Campbell this morning to speak about the hero's journey and how the hero's journey is an internal process in which one goes inside oneself to discover what the dragon is and then slay the dragon, basically. Um, And the dragon is a metaphor for the ego, but there's all different kinds of demons to be slayed on the inside. And so what I'm coaching people on is how to take the hero's journey on the inside so that they can essentially save themselves from mental health disorders and um, challenges and also just feeling unfulfilled with their lives. And because I know that that for me was a really important journey that I went on. And in doing that, we can all then save the world collectively as we save ourselves. So that's my mission. And if it's something that is really interesting to you, or if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please reach out to me uh, at phelan.com slash coach. Thanks so much. Enjoy this episode. Three, two, one, zero, zero. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited and honored to talk to you and hear your story. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. Um, so to start out, I would just love to hear uh, how your ancestors, your grandparents, your parents, um, they were all musicians, how that kind of shaped your experience with music growing up and then what that looked like on your journey as a young adult. Yeah, um, it was, you know, as a kid, music was kind of an integral part of my upbringing. My, both my grandfathers were, were talented musicians, although one of them had passed away long before I was born. But um, so my, my father and my mother were both musical people and there was always records playing in the house and, and my dad, uh, uh, he liked to play the guitar and my mom was a singer. And so they were always set up in the living room. They had a little uh, 1960s Supro uh, tube amp and my dad had a, a cheap electric guitar and a microphone and nice. they would 
they would play songs, you know, of the, of the times, you know, in the living room and, you know, we'd have little sing-alongs and, and uh, there's actually a recording of me uh, singing the song, you are my sunshine when I was about four or five years old. That's awesome. Uh, during that period. So, so music was always around. It was always sort of a integral part of, you know, life, daily life. And I got my first contact with musical instruments and stuff early when I was three or four years old. And uh, a story that my father told me uh, was that one time he heard um, harmonics being tapped out on his, on, on his guitar from the, from the other room. And he came in the room and it was me. And I was sitting there. I don't remember this, but he told me the story um, that I was sitting there tapping out harmonics on his uh classical acoustic guitar that day and wow. so music has always sort of been something that was has drawn me and it was it's really my first language that's cool very cool um so then just to like bring us to where you're at now like what are you up to today and what's been just a little bit of your journey with music over your life just to give the listeners kind of a platform to understand you sure thing um so what started back then uh was you know, kind of an early understanding of sort of the power of music. Uh, I remember looking into the speaker of the phonograph that at, in, in the living room we had and hearing the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand song come out. And I remember being probably four years old and thinking, how do I get in there? I want to do that. And so from the very start, I had this sort of drive inside of me to create music, to tell, uh, to speak with music. And so as I got older, things kind of, you know, my family life was really, really topsy-turvy and very um, um, unstable. And music was sort of an anchor during those years that held me together. Um, I, I leaned heavy on music to get me through very difficult times. And when I say leaned heavy on it, I'm really mostly just talking about listening to it, you know. Um, but I did start writing when I was about nine years old. I started writing. I, started, I wrote my first song when I was nine years old. Uh, I wrote it about a butterfly. <laughs> and um, I've been writing ever since. And the first sort of instrument that I used to express myself with musically was the guitar. And I found myself throughout the years, you know, navigating my way into uh, performing with bands. Um, I did a lot of lead singing with bands and stuff. And then I went into uh, uh, folk music for a while, playing the guitar and doing folk songs, some, some, some covers, some of my own stuff, even cut an album in that style back in the day that's long gone out of print. But um, then, then the flute came along and um, I found its way into my life. And, you know, I honestly didn't think of it um, as being sort of a pathway into a musical journey or anything. I didn't think of it as being a, something I would use to create music. I didn't think of it that way. I, I was only using it at the start as um, one of the items that I would kind of talk about when I would go to universities and, and speak on culture and, and those kind of things. And I had a little, you know, box of things I would bring 
to talk about. And the flute, I had a couple of those and they were, they were among those items in the box and I would play them. And as part of the demonstration, I would play them. And, and from the moment I picked up that instrument, it, it, it felt like it was right. It was just, I, I could play it. I never had a lesson. No one taught me how to play it. Um, it just sort of showed itself to me and I just went with it. And after sharing it in that educational context for, for quite a number of years, people started asking, you know, do you have that on tape? You know, I'd love to hear that. And this was, this was way back. This is probably 25 years ago anyway. And that kind of planted the seed for the idea to, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll make a recording. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, went into the studio to make that very first recording with the flute and shoot, did my first performance of that 25 years ago or more ago. Wow. And, um, wow, you know, the reaction was just phenomenal. Yeah. Just incredible. And so I couldn't have expected it. I didn't anticipate it. I surely didn't grab up the flute thinking I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a flute musician, you know, right. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that at all, you know, it just yeah. sort of sort of happened in a way, you know. So that's how I ended up, you know, kind of doing what I do and where I am today. Cool. What was it like just like coming from being a metal lead singer going to playing flute music? Because they're so different. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say I, I, I couldn't have dreamed it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had this vision in my head I was going to be a rock star, you know, or whatever, you know. And I, I had, you know, had some success with some, some pretty darn good bands um, back in the day. And, you know, that's where my kind of my heart was, you know. I loved the lead singing and uh, I love that kind of music. I'm a musically eclectic. I kind of like, you know, everything from hip hop to heavy metal to uh, folk and, of course, Native American flute music, too, you know. So, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I just love music in general. and but you know, the idea that to go from that genre, you know, that kind of metal genre to, you know, the Native American flute, um, you know, how that happened was a very gradual process. It, it, it wasn't like an overnight thing. It wasn't like, oh, I got a flute. I'm going to make a, I'm going right, to, you know, right. this is how I'm going to make a living. You know, I, it, it, it never crossed my mind. And, and it was just a gradual process of kind of inching my way back into the experiences I had growing up, the things that I learned, you know, from my family, from my grandpa, and, and just kind of tapping into those little seeds that were planted when I was young. And it kind of, you know, it was a, like I said, it was, it was a slow process to, to, to kind of come into that space. But, but over time, it sort of unfolded like a flower. That's beautiful. What were some of those, like, I guess I'm curious about your your childhood and how you grew up and all of the trauma that you dealt with as a as a kid and with your parents splitting up and how did all of that stuff that you experienced growing up influence and then come back and help you with your your flute music and come to bring you a better understanding of your own self and of the world and you know what was the growth like for you and dealing with the pain That's a really good question. Um you know the the trauma of not only, you know, your parents, you know, parting ways. I was five going on six when that happened. Um, that, um, you know, was a difficult period. But 
what followed that was far worse um, in the fact that, you know, we ended up in a home with a, with a, with a stepmother who was horribly abusive to me and my siblings and, and abused us in every way a child can be abused. And, you know, one of the things that comes out of trauma is empathy is an understanding of what it means when other people hurt. And when you're broken apart like that, when you when you have your sort of innocence stripped away from you and you're forced to see the world, you know, see the raw kind of underbelly of the world, um, what it what it does for you is the gift that it gives you, ironically, is this fearlessness about taking chances. You know, it's that when you've sort of been at the bottom, when you sort of experience what it's like to live in the darkness, to, to be forced to live in that place, you know, um, then the darkness doesn't scare you as much. You know, you, you, you're not really as afraid of, of, you know, disaster. <laughs> you're not as afraid of, you know, when, if something doesn't work out or because you've experienced it, you know? And so that kind of, um, that part of my life, ironically helped to shape my worldview and helped me to, it really, it brought me to a place where I could see people and understand their pain. And when the flute came into my life and when I began to learn a little bit about where it came from, because I had to catch up, you know, I didn't, the flute came later. I didn't even know what it was when I first was introduced to it. And I had to ask, you know, I had to ask elders and people, you know, who, who knew what they were. I had to ask questions, you know, and I learned a lot about what the flute was about. And, and, you know, the flute became this sort of instrument that I could use to express that empathy, to express that understanding of what it means to be hurt and how important it is to heal from that hurt you know, and to recover from the trauma and find your voice and find your power and your medicine in the place where you were hurt. And so that's kind of, you know, really how the, the music that I, that I create now, how it um, sort of infused itself with the idea of helping people uh, heal from trauma and helping people find um, healing and balance and purpose in their life. Um, that's kind of the journey about, you know, how that sort of those two elements of my life sort of kind of merged and came together. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Really profound. I never really thought about the flute as something that is such a medicinal instrument, but it really is. It's very powerful, huh? Absolutely. It's um, to me, it's far more of a spiritual instrument than it is is a musical instrument. I mean, the music that it creates to me is a spiritual sound, you know, it, it, yeah. it's, it's something deep inside of all of us, I think. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned while you were talking is going to elders to ask for clarification and guidance. Um, is that something that you've made a practice of doing in your life? And how have you found the mentorship and the elders around you to give you the guidance you want? Well, it started off, with my grandpa, 
Um, one of the things I would do to get away from the abuse in my home was I would get on my bicycle and ride over to my maternal grandfather's house. And that was my very first sort of introduction into our um, family lineage and, and our, you know, the Lakota background in my family and those things that he, those little things that he taught, there wasn't a lot. Uh, but it was enough and it was enough to plant a seed in me and to instill in me an identity uh, that I clung to uh, in my youth. It, 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 it was something that really helped me through a very difficult period in my life. That sense of self, that sense of identity that my grandfather instilled in me. And I'm kind of, I was kind of a, kind of a strange kid, you know, I, I was always interested in, in, in spending time with older people. I liked to visit with my grandpa. I liked to, yeah, you too, huh? I liked to visit with, um, with elders and people who were older than me. I loved spending time with my, my grandmother and my, my grandpa and, you know, and those older people. And as I got older, uh, I sought out those people as well. Having grown up far away from uh, my Lakota um, ancestors and relatives, uh, I grew up in Michigan, far away from them. Uh, I went back as a young man just to go back to the land and just touch the place. And But it took a long, long time. And I, 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 I waited and I was patient and I took time to just let things unfold. And I didn't force the issue. But over time... Um, I made connections and I and I developed relationships with with Lakota people and, and some of those some of those folks were you know elders they were people who were older and they had knowledge and I just loved nothing more than sitting with those people and listening to them and, and learning from them and just being quiet and just listening to them talk you know and so their their guidance um, throughout these years has been, crucial to me. It's been the most important thing in my life is the guidance of all the elders that I've, that I've talked with. And it's not just Lakota elders, you know, the, you know, the, the elders from other nations, the elders from, you know, that I've met throughout the years um, from all walks of life, you know, have, have given me a sense of, of what's important. Hmm. Wow. I feel like I asked a lucky question. I just happened to like hit something deep. Um, I'm, I'm curious about like what it was like for you to go back into the Lakota community and experiencing that as an adult, because to me, like I grew up going to a nature camp, I think that was largely inspired by Native American tradition, but was not necessarily like, it didn't originate in that. It was almost like a copycat version, which I mean, I love like the group and I love the people there, but I don't think it was super, I don't know maybe like not super culturally appropriate or I don't really know, but I'm just curious. Cause like the, the form of like community and central centrality and, and just interconnectedness of the native American perspective on life is really, really powerful. And I'm wondering like for you, what was that like to reconnect to a different point of view and a different um, perspective on life that like is so rarely portrayed in modern day America, but was like the origination point for America. Yeah. I, you know, it kind of, you know, like I said, um, 
that little seed of understanding and and knowledge was planted in me by my grandpa when I was little, when I was younger. I say little, I'm talking, but between the ages of nine and 15, that period of time, um, those little seeds were planted in me, This that there was a different worldview. There was a different way of looking at it. And that way, that worldview lived in my veins, that it was in my you know DNA, my um, ancestry. And so those first connections um, and the connections that followed um, meant more to me than anything. Um, you know, the, the connection that I, that I had when, when a, a, dear, a dear brother to me, uh, Percy Whiteplume, when he reached out to me and said, hey, I want you to um, come on the Chief Bigfoot Memorial Ride, which is this incredible journey on the back of a horse that goes back to Wounded Knee, where the massacre happened in 1890. It's, it's wow. a couple hundred mile journey on a horse. And, you know, for somebody who did not grow up riding horses, <laughs> um, and somebody who, frankly, didn't grow up on the reservation and didn't grow up, uh, you know, around that, that invitation was everything to me. It meant everything to me. Um, of course, I, I said yes, you know, even though, you know, I didn't know what I was getting myself into <laughs> yeah, as far as right. being on a horse like that, you know. But thankfully, I had a lot of help and, um, you know, I was able to make the journey on that horse, you know. 135 miles we uh, I rode and, and thankfully never fell off the horse and made it the whole way. And just to be just to be accepted in that way was just, you know, so powerful. And, you know, to um, to kind of connect and to be accepted. And that, that, that was a real um, powerful moment for me in my life. Cool. Yeah, I'll bet. I think it's, it's always a powerful thing to find a community of people who really accepts you and loves you for who you are. So yeah, that's awesome. That's right. I, I'm curious, like what you think about how to kind of connect the Native American ideals and people and the reservation experience to the broader America today. Because I think that to me, sometimes it's like a, you know, there's almost like an us and them way of thinking about it, even though it's not actually like that. Right. But there's sometimes like between different groups of people, it's always like hard to bridge the gap. But I think that it's like really important to do that in a, a meaningful and intentional way in the next 50 years or even the next five years right so like what do you think are some strategies and ways to like bring everyone together um in the u.s and i guess it can extend beyond like native americans just like with all groups of people right now that's a heavy 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 question my man it is um, you're a wise dude i think you can do it. <laughs> um i um first want to say that you know i i um speak only for myself and my own experience um i surely don't claim to represent the voice of all native people. Um, right, right. Everyone has yeah. their own perspectives and views on this. And, and I'm still, you know, I consider myself still very much a student. Um, and, uh, but my view of where we are collectively as human beings and how indigenous, the indigenous sort of way, the native way can, can, can be a positive uh, contributor to where we're going as, as a people is that I think we've gotten too 
absorbed in ourselves. We've gotten as a people individually, we've there's this sort of me mentality that's kind of taken hold. And the old way, the old indigenous way was community. It was about taking care of the whole of the community first. And it was about thinking of others first before yourself making sure that the the community was healthy and everyone was taken care of first before you tended to your own needs. That community way, that way of living has something to offer this people of this time, I believe, because even, even as you look around today at what's happening with, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and you, you see, um, you know, arguments about whether or not to wear a mask or, you know, these kinds of things, it, 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 the, that betrays something in the culture and what it betrays is a selfishness. It, it, it shines a light on the fact that, that some people are not willing to even do a small thing for the greater good of the whole. And I think the ways of indigenous people about, you know, community, that community-based way has something to offer, I think, this, this current people of this current time. The idea that I'm not doing this for me, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for the community. I'm doing this for the greater good of everyone. That's a, that's a, I think that's something. And there's, there's, there's lots of other examples for sure. Um, the sense of, um, you know, doing things honorably being an honorable person, keeping your word, um, you know, uh, understanding, you know, the power of the sacred, um, being uh, decent and kind, you know, these are all things that, you know, in my experiences, you know, being around my people, they're just, they're good people, you know, and they, they think about other people. There's, there's a, there's a, there's an honor system in that old way that's that's like lacking in a lot of modern society these days. Hmm. Yeah. I'm with you. Community all the way. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, so I, I'm curious just to like kind of wrap this back around to authenticity and your journey as a, as a person. Um, and you talked earlier about how flute for you is a way to have empathy and to let out um, a healing like song for other people. How does someone or what advice would you give to someone to find their authentic calling in such a way that they can give it to the community or do it, be doing it in a, a non-selfish way? Because I actually think that in order to be authentic, you kind of need to be doing it for someone else or some larger purpose. But sometimes it's overwhelming to even start the process of like, what do I like to do? What is my passion? So then like, how do you even get to that final step of what can I do for others? Right. I think the journey to authenticity is, is long and winding. You know, um, it seems like uh, most of the people I know who are the most authentic people are a little longer in the tooth you know they're a little older they've they've had enough time 
to be okay with their flaws. They've had enough time to be okay with their imperfections and to accept themselves as they are and to realize that they have something to give from their own space, their own center. I, I have a great story about that. I One time I... um. Years ago, when I was doing these living history programs, they were um, educational type programs for young people, usually in the fourth or fifth grade um, uh, age group. And they would come and, you know, we have you know, half an hour, 45 minutes to, to, do, to do a little program or presentation. And so I had my program and, and that I had done well with these groups, you know, teaching them kind of breaking stereotypes and you know, those kind of things and teaching a little bit about history and those kind of things, a living history uh, program. Well, I met this guy, uh, his name was Ron. He was a Mohawk guy. And he, he actually uh, had a program uh, with us one day and I got to watch his program. And I just so loved his program. I was so impressed with it. He and I got to meet and, and we were, you know, he really was just a great guy. And, and I became friends with him and, and I so admired his program that throughout the following year, I sort of incorporated some of what he had, what I had watched him do. I sort of incorporated some of the cool things I liked into my own program. And so it came a year passed and we were back at the same venue and Ron was going to be there. And I remember the night before thinking to myself, kind of in a panic, oh my goodness, some of the stuff I've incorporated were Ron's, you know, <laughs> kind of gig, you know, I, what am I going to do? You know, um, I, I can't, I, you know, I, I, I what am I going to do? Ron's going to be there. I don't want to do stuff that he does, you know? So I kind of had a little epiphany that night and I felt like inside of me, it was almost like a spiritual awakening. The spirit kind of came to me and said, you don't need to tell another person's story. You don't need to share in another person's way you have your own story honor that story that that story may not seem like anything from your perspective but from other people's perspective it's it's where the power lies because it's your story and that was the beginning of an awakening for me when i started to realize how important it was for me to just be in, be, be comfortable to be grounded in my own story and my own skin and my own experience and my own journey. And that there was a power in that story. There was a power in that. And that was a real awakening for me. And I think that really is kind of how authenticity, the, the journey into authenticity sort of happens. You see, that is my story that I need to share. It's the story of my journey in this life and what I've experienced, the losses and the struggles and the victories and the triumphs. All of those experiences that I've had are my authentic story and they're part of who I am and they're part of what I have to give. And that was the beginning of that kind of door opening for me. And I think that's how I would sort of, um, you know, explain what it means to be in that to get to that authentic space. Hmm, very cool. How did that uh, presentation end up going? <laughs> I would have to say it was probably the best one I had done in a long time. <laughs> when, I, 
And I kind of shed myself of, of the things that I had picked up from Ron. But here's another part of that story, too, is there, there's people in our lives that we meet that we that we that we're, we admire those people and we aspire to be like them. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and I've had, you know, people along the way that I've looked to and I've tried to emulate and I've learned from. There's a point when you got to sort of um, release some of that emulation, if you will, and sort of find the lessons that came from the example of those people hmm. and apply them to your own sort of authentic story. Yeah. And that's been a process. That's been a journey for me too, you know, is it, the people that I've, that I've, you know, learned from and that I've listened to and that I've admired and emulated um, have been part of what has taught me how to be the best version of my authentic self uh, going forward. Does that ever stop? Like, have you found, or do you keep on admiring people and then trying to be like them and then realizing it's not actually you? Like, is there ever a point where you're just authentic and then you can do it easily or, or is it always kind of a, a growing process? That's a really good question. I think that you never stop growing in that way, but as the years go on, more and more of you kind of get the sort of reason why you're here. You sort of sink into that sense of yourself and that sense of your purpose and what it is that you have to give and share and offer. And more and more throughout the years, I've, I've, I've been with people that I admire. Um, you know, one of the, one of my dearest Oglala brothers, uh, Childress Thunderhawk, he passed away this past October. And, you know, he, to, I love, I love Chubbs. He was one of my favorite people in the world. And, and there was, so much that he had each so much that he you know shared with me as I sat you know many 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 a time sat beside a fire and just sat quiet and listened to him just teach things you know he was always teaching stuff you know and and you know I can honestly say that I um there's a part of me that that strives to emulate him because, you know, he had, there were some things that he used to constantly say that um, I think were really wise things. You know, one of the things he always said was stay positive, no negativity. He always said that. And whenever I catch myself, you know, wanting to slip into negativity or, or do that or go into that space, I'm always reminded of, of Chubbs. I'm always reminded of his uh, admonition to don't do that. Don't, don't be negative. Stay positive. You know, it's not always easy to do, but that's something I emulate uh, try to anyway. Um, but, but I did not, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that I found myself, you know, um, sort of emulating him to the point where I sort of lost myself or anything like that at this point in my life, because I have, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of years, you know, um, getting into that space where you are comfortable in your own skin, you know, and all that. I wasn't always comfortable in my own skin when I was young, you know, very insecure and, you know, still trying to find my way and, you know, and all that. But as you get older and you learn a little bit and you kind of, you know, you grow and you kind of find your own, your own voice. And, and so I'm at that place where I, you know, I feel like I have my own voice and, and I'm comfortable with that. 
but it doesn't mean I can't learn. It doesn't mean I can't, you know, pick up something and learn something uh, from, from those around me for sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, something I'm wondering about as you talk and you share that story with Chubbs and the wisdom he shared is just kind of what are some of the the practices like the daily or weekly practices that you've found are really, really helpful to ground you in the essence of you, right? So meditation, journaling, taking a walk, like whatever it might be, what are some things that really help you be yourself? I probably would say that the answer to that are the times that I spend outside in the natural world. The natural world is, is, for me, the the grounder. It's the it's it's what it's what I think we all need to connect with to kind of recover that sense of balance and you know perspective. Whenever things get crazy, you can always take a step outside and sit down on a on a on a log somewhere out in the forest, spend a little bit of time just being quiet. And you start to figure out that, you know, the whole world, um, you know, it doesn't revolve around what comes out of that TV. You know, it, it doesn't revolve around what we scroll past when we're flicking our thumb on our mobile device. You know, it, it's a tiny little window into a world that's, quite frankly, mostly artificial. Um, the real world is out there. It's out there in the natural places. It's it's. It's touching people, you know, it's being in the same space with somebody, you know, and uh, it's important, you know, to, to sit in, in, in the, in, in the circle with somebody, to sit there with somebody and, and connect with them. You know, that's really the only way you get to know somebody, you know, you can't know somebody like I couldn't pretend to know you cause I, you know, had a chat with you on a video screen. You know, I, I would want to be in the room with you and spend more time and get to know you and, you know, when we get to know each other kind of intimately in those ways, uh, when we, when we're, when we're close, we, that's when we really find, you know, that authenticity, we find out who, who somebody really is, you know, and, you know, that, that's what I find when I go out in the natural world, you know, I've, I've always tell a story about how, you know, back in 2008, 2007, 2008, when the, um, you know, the economy was in shambles, um, all the news was gloom and doom, you know, and everything was crash and burn and, you know, the world was coming to an end. And I walked outside my door and went out into the woods and sat down and I watched a squirrel for probably an hour, an hour sitting out there gathering nuts, running around, doing his thing. And it occurred to me that this squirrel had no clue about what was going on at Wall Street, what was happening to the housing market. He, he didn't care. You know, he, he was eating a nut. Everything was fine. Yeah. It reminded me that everything's okay. You know, it's not the end of the world. You know, this, there's, there's, there's what's real, there's what's authentic. And then there's what's sort of contrived and sort of, you know, fabricated, you know, and we've fabricated this world. And sometimes that fabricated world, you know, it, it stumbles or it has problems, but the real world, the natural world, it's, it, it never, it's always out there waiting for us to come to it and connect to it and find ourselves in it, you know? So that to me is my place of grounding. Yeah. Same. Makes me want to go outside. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's for me, like it's, it's, um, 
you know, over the last few years, I've kind of been exploring my own spirituality and what I'm like looking for in, in God or what God is. And I grew up like not very spiritual or religious at all. And well, I guess spiritual, but not religious. And then what I've discovered recently is just like those moments that I can go outside and look up at a tree and look at the leaves and watch them blow in the wind or, you know, look at a flower that's just like so stunning. Like those are the the things that really ground me in reality, like you're talking about, which is cool. So yeah, I, I agree. Um, something that, so actually the way that I discovered you was on your blog and I was looking for, I'm so I was writing, uh, this thing and I was thinking about authenticity and just kind of what it means. And then I remembered talking to a mentor of mine who was talking about the seven directions. Um, and so I went and just kind of did some, some digging cause I wanted to know more about like what those mean in, in native American tradition. And so I found your blog and you were talking about, um, the, the sacred hoop, the seven directions of the sacred hoop. And I would love for you to just talk about that a little bit, because I think it was really cool for me to read about, and it definitely is applicable to authenticity and life and all that stuff. For sure. Um, the seven, seven directions, seven sacred directions of the sacred hoop or what's also called the medicine wheel. Um, as I have learned it are about First of all, you have the first four, which are your, you know, your four directions, your east, south, west, and north, which is a circle. If you noticed east, south, west, and north is a circle. And that, that four direction wheel makes a, makes a hoop. And we learn about some of the basic things that come from the wheel that are the kind of basic tenets that apply to all of humanity. They're more specific things that are specific to culture. For example, you know, there's certain uh, animals or or you know whatnot on the on the wheel that will be that will pertain to Lakota culture versus you know the Ojibwe people for example they have they have a wheel and they'll have different animals because of where they where they're from and whatnot but there are some tenets of the of the sacred hoop the seven directions that are applicable to all of humanity and those are the ones I like to focus on uh, most of the time. Um, they are that, of course, you have east, south, west, and north. You have your four directions. And then you have the uh, upward and upward, Onkatkia and Onkatkia, Father Sky, Mahkiate. Then you have uh, downward, Makaina, Nakumchimaka, Mother Earth and Grandmother Earth. And then you have Hoshoka, the center. And that's the seventh direction. And the four, the first cardinal four directions, you know, you it, 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 Earth, Fire, water, wind are the four elements. And you have the four phases of human life, infancy, adolescence, adulthood, and elder years. You have um, the, uh, the four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Uh, and there are lessons about those things. You know, that east direction, we think about new beginnings, you know, like infancy, the spring, the sun rising. Um, you know, the south direction, we think about those, you know, the adolescence and we think about passion. We think about those kind of things, the soul. That's the other uh, uh, thing about the wheel that I've been taught is that it has to do with the four parts of the human self, the body, the soul, the mind and the spirit. And those are four elements of the human condition. And the soul is kind of like the feeling part of ourself. It's like the child, the, the, the emotion. And the spirit is our essence. And we have our body and our mind. 
Wow. And on that wheel also was the red road and the blue road. The blue road is the road of troubles. It's a road of, uh, of uh, which, if we stay on it, can lead to destruction. It runs east to west. The red road runs north to south, and that's the holy road, Chankuluta, the red road. And so that there's all kinds of lessons like that. And it, it's that wheel, as as humble and simple as it is can be a lifelong teacher. It can teach us so much about what, what life is about. And, and I had a, a, a Shichangu, a Lakota brother of mine. He, he, uh, his name is David. And he told me, he said something one time when he was talking on the wheel that I, I've always remembered. He said, the way of the seven directions is, is, is like this. He said, you can't really understand the first six directions until you fully comprehend the enormity of the seventh direction, which is the center. It's all things pouring into and out of. He said, but you can't understand the seventh direction until you have experienced the first six directions. So it's a circle. So, you know, you go through that understanding and that learning of the of, of the the first six you 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 learn some about the seventh and then you go back to learning about the first first six again you know it's it's a circular process of of self-discovery it's a process of of learning about our place on the planet in the universe our, our place in the cosmos our our place in 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 this life and you know what and it, and it helps us to, to find ourselves, find our center and our balance. That's, for me, what the, what the sacred hoop and the seven directions and, and what that is all about. And those are the things that I've shared with people throughout the years about the, the sacred hoop. Um, uh, not, not really the more specific cultural things. Those are, those, are, those are specific to culture. And I've experienced those things right. in the context of cultural experiences. But, but where, where people who are outside of indigenous culture are concerned. Those tenets really apply to all of us, really. Um, and some of the some of the greatest teachers uh, from indigenous um, communities have have expressed that these things need to be shared with people outside of indigenous communities. These tenets, you know, because it, it it's really again what you uh, alluded to earlier about where we are as as a as a as a people right now and what uh, indigenous ways can do to help. Uh, sort of to be a benefit to humanity. That's one of those ways, I think, is the, the teachings that come from those the seven directions. It's, there's, there's, it's, it's not just something that's made up. It's actually part of the actual living experience of, you know, of the earth and, you know, where, you know, where the way things are, um, you know, like, it's like, for example, just to take one, the, the sacred elements, you know, earth, fire, water, wind, you take those, any one of those out of the equation and all life ceases to exist. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. you know, so, I mean, they, they are very important to us as human beings, um, those, those, those tenets and those lessons. Yeah. Cool. There's, um, one thing you said that really like, I mean, it was all awesome, but one thing you really said that stuck with me was the, the difference between soul and spirit. And I had never really differentiated between those two things before. Um, and mind, like for me, the mind is, was the same as the way you described the soul. And then the spirit would be how I would describe the soul and it's all semantics, but 
it's just interesting to think that there's like thinking, feeling, and then like being, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. Yep. yeah was, thinking, feeling, and being, that's a good way to say it. Right. I was just talking to my mom last night about um, some of our family members who are getting really old and what it's like to be with someone who's nearing the end of their life or, you know, who would be in the North in the, in the direction of winter. And, um, it's like such a different experience because those people are so present to the reality of the world often, you know? And I think that that's like really powerful, but it's not something that I've personally experienced before. Um, yeah, I don't really have a question, but if you have any thoughts about that, I'd be happy to hear that. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, that's one of the greatest things about elders is that they are past the point in their life when there there's a need to be in a hurry. You know, they're perfectly okay to just sit and be still for hours. They, they don't, they're not in a rush. And, you know, our society is always in a hurry. And one of the things that I think is really cool um, about the time that I've spent with Lakota elders is there is a space for silence. There's always a space for just sitting, not saying anything, just sitting and being still. And that's a, that's a, I think that's a art that we've lost in this modern Western culture, you know, the, idea that you know i used to work in radio and they used to say used to have this term dead air you know dead air was you know right. it was a cardinal sin of radio and they call it dead air because they don't recognize that in that quiet space there's life <laughs> there is something living in that space and that's the thing about elders that i love is they're okay with that quiet they're okay with the stillness they're okay to stop they're okay to sit and just wait for the thoughts to come and, you know, and then share when it's time and, and they're in no hurry. And that's the, the hardest thing I think for this society um, to be able to take the time to sit with elders, and listen to them. You know, this society takes its elders and kind of puts them away in a home and, you know, and in a lot of ways forgets about them, you know, and yeah. they're sitting there with all these stories. They're sitting there with all this wisdom. And we just let it go, you know. And I think that's sad, you know. And, you know, I've seen both sides of it. As a person of mixed ancestry, you know, i got, you know, plenty of members of my family who are non-native. And I've seen, you know, both sides of how, how things are done. And it's one of the things about mixed ancestry. It kind of gives you a, a chance to kind of see, you know, both sides of things, you know, you kind of become a human bridge, if you will. Uh, my friend Andrea um, used that term uh, many years ago. Um, she, she's a, a Métis, and she told me, we're like a bridge. You know, we kind of, we're, we, we can sort of identify with both sides. We see how, how things are, you know. And so I've seen how differently Indigenous people treat elders, you know, how they take the time with them and how they honor them, respect them. And I've also seen the other side where, you know, the, the elders are considered elder. They're considered a, a, um, elderly. And right. they're kind of, you know, 
almost patronized in a way and kind of put away and they're not really, you know, honored like they are in indigenous ways, you know, so I've seen both sides of that, you know, but that's the greatest thing about, about the old ones, man. They, they got all the time in the world, man. If you just take that yeah. time, the stuff you will learn can change your life. Wow. It's so crazy that like the younger you are, the less time you think you have. And then the older you are, the more you realize it's okay to just slow down. Yeah. I was just reading this book yesterday and one of the, I didn't expect it from this book, but it was like a, a life, like how to be a life coach book basically. But it was all about like the money part of it. But one of the things that the book said was just slow down. Like that was one of the most important things that I took away from the book. And so it's really interesting to hear it like reiterated over and over again in our conversation today. It's just to like sit, be, go in the woods, watch a squirrel, like let the thoughts come. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the, uh, one of the early uh, teachings I, I learned from an old Muskogee guy. And, you know, he told me, he said three words, sit with it. Whenever something is, has got you troubled, sit with it. Don't decide. Yeah. Don't make anything right. Don't make any rash decisions. Just sit with it and be okay to be, to, to take the time that it needs for the answer to unfold. You know, I learned that a long time ago. And it's, 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 those are wise words there. Yeah, for sure. So, um, thank you. <laughs> that was, that was awesome. Uh, one of the last questions I always ask is, um, which we, I guess have, have covered, but just to get it locked in at the end, what does authenticity mean to you? Well, authenticity to me means being true to yourself. I think it means that you have to honor yourself. You have to care about um, your place in the world and be genuine in your expression of, of who you are. That's to me what authenticity is about. It's, it's, it's really less about um, other people's perceptions of you and more about your own perception of yourself. You know, yeah. who am I? What, you know, how do I identify? What story do I have to share? What, uh, who, you know, who am I as a person? You know, I always like to make this joke, you know, they always ask on, um, on Wheel of Fortune, what do you do? And people always tell them what their job is. Right. And there's this sense that somehow your job is your identity. It's like who you are. When in fact, that's not true. It, it, who you are, your authentic self is something deeper than that. It's deeper than what you do. Um, and it's it's, it's even deeper than, you know, where you come from. It's deeper than culture. It's deeper than your ethnic background. It's deeper than all those things. Your authenticity is something that, that really is anchored in that north direction of the seven of the sacred hoop. You know, it's that, mm. it's that, um, that spirit. It's your own, your essence. And that's what authenticity is, is, is the, 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 the center of your essence your being of person, who am I, who are you? And that to me, when you find that answer, then you have tapped into the truth of what 
and who you are as an authentic human being. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks. Um, just to wrap us up, I just want to say thank you so much. This was such a timely experience for me and what we talked about. I think it really helped me personally. And I'm, so I'm sure it will help other people too. I found that like the best way for me to interview people is to just do it very like selfishly right now and just ask the questions I want to ask. And then hopefully other people will have the same questions. So it's an, yeah. it's an honor Thank you for having me and re- for reaching out, man. Yeah, for sure. Um, just to give you, I want to give you a chance to share where people can find what you do. Uh, okay. My website is uh, my name, uh, John two hawks.com. Uh, that's J O H N T W O H A W K S.com. Um, that's, um, where you can find my, uh, my music. Um, but you can also find me on iTunes, um, Amazon, uh, streaming, uh, the best place probably is Spotify. Spotify. Um, so yeah, find me there. So those are all the places I can think of off the top of my head. Well, John, I must say this has been an absolute pleasure. I don't know if I've learned more specifically about what it means to go all in on wisdom and living a life that is related to quietness, silence, peace, and listening to the elders as I have from you just now. So thank you so much for coming on and it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that concludes this episode of the Authentic Path Podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I definitely did. This was definitely one of my favorite episodes. And if you did enjoy it, please go leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, except for Spotify, because Spotify does not have a rating system. And that would mean a lot to me. So thanks. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And as always, stay authentic. Stay authentic.